Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on June 6th, 2019 at Provincetown Theatre in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was food. I'm Vanessa Vardabedian. And I'm William Mullen. And we are the co-hosts of the Mosquito Story Slam. How did I miss this show? I know, you missed some good ones. I must have been eating somewhere. What's your favorite food, William? Well, if it was one food, uh, it's a combination, red wine and chocolate. That's that's a food group, okay. <laughs> I literally could survive on that for the rest of my life, but I, I, I it's not a healthy choice. It's, it's it you know, in some cultures it is, so it is. you should move there. Um, yeah, I, well, you know, food was big in my family. I'm Middle Eastern, Lebanese, Syrian, Armenian. So food was the center of celebration and grief and my hips. And there's so many different stories that can come out of food. Um, uh, your body is linked to food. Your mental health is linked to food, the happiness. And I'm so glad that monologuist and author Mike Alba was able to join the show. He was. It was fantastic. And it was a really eclectic night of stories about food and what food means to people. So let's listen. We have a very special guest host who has joined us tonight. Um, his name is Mike Albo. Hi. Um... Everyone applaud Vanessa's dress. That is the coolest dress. Thank you. Um, it's making me hungry. <laughs> the first storyteller is Kristen Knowles. Kristen Knowles. I was a kid. I was born with a huge appetite. Huge. My mother says that I would eat things that weren't food, and she was really concerned that I had pica because I ate like dirt and ants and you know. Um, so I think somehow I didn't have pica, but that faded. However, I continued to have sort of an obsession with food and um, eating things that I shouldn't eat. One of the things was uh, when I was four, she said she found me at the kitchen table lining up St. Joseph's baby aspirin, which was orange flavored and chewable. And she realized that there was something special about me because I had lined them up perfectly in rows and I was eating them symmetrically in a pattern. This has played out throughout the rest of my life. Believe me, I'm, you know, it's like a OCD symmetry thing. Um, M&M's, big time. Um, so anyway, so I got like all this acclaim in my family for being a good eater. I was that kid who would try anything. I would sit at the kitchen table with my grandparents and when I, we went to visit my grandparents, I called it the sit and smoke because we would sit around the kitchen table and all the women would sit and smoke. And they'd say things like, yeah, gonna go down to the A&P there, they're having a special on corned beef. Figure I could get two or three dinners out of it, maybe a couple sandwiches. And that was scintillating to me. 
as a child. My grandparents' refrigerator always smelled of spoiled milk. Um, my grandfather was a meat cutter his whole life. He was a union meat cutter, first at First National and then AMP. And on weekends, when he was bored, he would go to the slaughterhouse. And he told me how there was a hole in the middle of the floor, and whatever was left over, they would scrape it all in. And that was sausage. <laughs> so, so on the flip side, on that side of my family, all of my cousins and my aunt were morbidly obese. And um, I would remember having these conversations with slimmer people in our family who would say things like, she is such a pretty girl. What a shame that she's let herself go like that. And my mother would constantly denigrate herself too. It's funny because, you know, I mean, as a child, you internalize all this stuff, right? My friend told me that just last year, she went to visit her 97-year-old mother, and she said, Mom, how are you doing? You look great. And her mother went, I'm fine, but this, this, done with it. And she's like, you're 97. Like, get, seriously. My God, woman. You know, like, there are more things in life than whether or not you can pinch several inches. Um, so, I was a good eater, and by the age of nine, that was not a good thing, because I reached puberty at nine. I lived on, basically, like, my, my grandfather always brought us dented cans and outdated meat. So I lived on outdated hamburger and chicken throughout my um, childhood and dented cans. And... Um, and we know that they used all sorts of growth hormones in the milk, and you had to have milk with dinner and whatever. So basically, the bottom line is I had boobs by the time I was nine. By the time I was 10, I was a 36C, five foot seven, and I looked like I was 15. And obviously, I also got a lot of attention for that. So my next door neighbor said to my mom, as I was reaching this stage, she said, I think she's getting a little chunky. Now, my next-door neighbor had an eating disorder, and she drove a Monte Carlo, and she was beautiful. She had blonde hair, and she was French. She used to give me French lessons. And um, I was so mortified that this woman was like, she's getting chunky. So, um, and so was my mother. So she put me on a diet, my first diet. And let's just say that um, since then, uh, it's been basically like the struggle of my entire frickin' life. I have never been slim. I have always been a woman who was born of agrarian, like, like rootstock that is wide-hipped and thick-ankled, and, you know, I am ready to reproduce. <laughs> um, I can work like a, you know, I... <clears throat> Um, and, and so I used to joke about that and say, um, in Latin class my senior year, uh, my, I would say to my friend, who was the only other senior in the class, I would be like, sum femina magna, I am big woman. <laughs> but the bottom line of this story is that my grandfather made me feel proud that I was a good eater. 
I was a good girl. I didn't give them any trouble. I was the one that was like the golden child. He treated my brother like a bastard. He, he called my brother the little bastard. And then I realized that he had done the same thing to my mother and her sister. And so my mother was the bad one. So here I was, the golden child, and I was constantly hearing all these comments about, you know, all, all these mean things, and yet I was the one who was wonderful, and there was nothing that I could do that was wrong in my grandfather's eyes. And um, I would hear things, too, from my family, like my mother would say, you know, uh, she would look at me every time I came downstairs, and if I looked thin, she would say, oh, honey, you look so nice, that outfit is really slimming. And if I didn't, she wouldn't say anything. And that was every single day, you know? And when I think about it now, and I think of my grandfather and, you know, all the love he showered on me and the way that he was, um, his hands were so rough, he would rub my back and he would, he would say, um, he would just be so kind, and, and his, because he was a meat cutter, they were calloused and cut and like, felt like sandpaper, and it was like ecstatic for me to feel that. And, but as I got older, he wouldn't rub my back anymore because there was a sexual aspect that came into it, and I didn't understand that. I thought it was me that was bad. And um, no, no man's hand after that. I had wonderful, you know, men in my family who made, who I felt safe around. And those, those, uh, those hands in the future weren't safe for me. However, you know, I grew up um, in, such a, in such a loving place with the men in my life. And I, as an adult, met a man who was the most honest, kind man I've ever known, and eventually we got married, and he's a tile contractor and a farmer, and his hands are calloused and rough like sandpaper. And when he rubs my back, I feel that same sense of euphoria and love um, that I feel completely embraced and held. and. Um, no matter what I look like, no matter where I am in my life, I know that I am by this man. Um, and that is a wonderful thing. So that's it. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Let's get to the second storyteller. Second storyteller. I'm going to do my Boston accent all night. All right, James Shannon, it is uh, your time. All right, so food. 10 years ago, um, I decided to start a food truck business on Cape Cod in Wellfleet. At the time, I had just sold a charter fishing business, and I wanted to try something new. And so, you know, I, I researched, I went online, I found a place where I could put it. I did all the bullshit with the town and the 50 permits and do you clean your hands, and are you allergic, and all of that shit. I did it all. And I ordered this thing custom made, 
big bucks. My, I sunk my whole wad into it. And, uh, <clears throat> well, first I should say, I was running it by some friends, and one friend said to me, well, I don't know, Jim, that sounds like a good idea, but you don't really like people. <laughs> but I went ahead anyway. Anyway, so I order this thing, you know, it's weeks and weeks and weeks, and finally they're, they're saying delivery is coming. The guy will be there on the 17th, whatever. So the guy pulls up. It was from Indiana, right? And the vehicle this guy was driving looked like something out of Grapes of Wrath. And he himself looked like, uh, like an extra in Deliverance or one of those Duck Dynasty dudes. Anyway, he drops the thing off. It's beautiful. It's, it's gorgeous, right? Custom made. I opened the door. Everything had fallen apart. In, I don't know if this guy went through the fucking Rockies to get here from India. I don't know. Everything was destroyed on the ground. They didn't secure. And All right. We get all that straightened out. Finally get that all straightened out. Get it all hooked up, electric, water, turn it on. And every single water gap, uh, 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 clamp, clamp. Every single water clamp exploded. Every, like anywhere water was connected just started pouring out of this thing. All right. So we get that fixed. The next thing that happened was I, I didn't get started until the end of October <laughs> in a tourist town. So there I was in Wellfleet, uh, a little bit before Cumberland Farms on the right, where there is a food truck now, which some of you may be aware of. It's, it's good when it's open. Um, so for the first <laughs> two or three weeks, it was... Uh, and my wife and daughter would come by. Nothing happened. Nothing. It was too late. I blew it. So I thought, well, we'll get a we'll get a jump started on it in the summer. In the meantime, oh, by the way, the name of the company was the, the food truck was flying the flying baguette. <laughs> I don't understand. Why is that funny? So I get a so I shut the whole thing down. I'm like, well, you know, we'll get going in the summer. And I get this letter, the cease and desist letter, from some company called the Flying Baguette out in California, telling me I have to change the name of the place. So now I'm like, oh shit, you know, I already got the thing on the side. I, honestly, I don't recall what it, I think I called it the floating baguette, which in hindsight, not the best image. Um, So we opened up in the summer, and you know it was pretty good. I had a really good. That's a good fucking spot. And by the way, first truck food truck on Cape Cod. Yeah, and now there's like three. Um, so there we were. You know, I had all my stuff going. Now, mind you, prior to this job, 
you know, I was a charter boat captain. A lot of freedom there, a lot of open space, a lot of air, and not a lot of this shit. <laughs> so, <coughs> I remember the first customer I got in the summer was these six drunk idiots who were coming back from a charter trip. And they, you know, they pull up, and there's one of them sober, thank God, the driver. And the other ones are like going behind my food truck, pissing. And I, I was just like, man, I went up to the sober guy. I was like, dude, you got, you gotta go. You guys, you gotta go. This is not, this is, this may be called the floating baguette, but I do have certain standards. <laughs> anyway, so it started to work, right? I, I had some good stuff, but I'm not good with the money and the portioning and all that shit that's involved with running a food thing. Like, I had this lobster roll. You know when you go get a lobster roll, you're like, it looks like a lot of lobster because it's on this little piece of shit hot dog bun, like cheap hot dog bun. Now, I got these monster rolls, grilled them with butter, tons of lobster meat. Yeah, I was losing money, like you wouldn't believe. And the people with all these ludicrous requests, uh, you know, I, I have a medical condition. <laughs> it's a food truck, man, it's not an ambulance. <laughs> so, it, it, I think I lasted about a month, and it was doing okay. You know, people were coming by, it was a good spot. First food truck on Cape Cod. But I, you know, it's like uh, Cool Hand Luke. Anyone ever see that movie? You know, anyone get caught, anyone caught smoking in bed or playing grab ass spends a night in the box? <laughs> well, that was the box. And I was in the box every day. Just a little box. And it just, it just wasn't for me. Um, and luckily, this incredible couple, Jamie and Chris, who own, uh, they bought my food truck, right? Young people, they like people. <laughs> they got a kick-ass restaurant. Oh shit, did I get, I gotta go? All right, two, two, 20 minutes? <laughs> um, so they ended up buying it and I felt really good about that because they were so cool. And, th and they hooked it up. They had flowers and chairs and tiki lamps and umbrellas. You know, I, I had a couple of tree stumps out there. I wasn't... Anyway, that's my food story. <laughs> so uh, let, let's bring up our next storyteller, please. Betsy. Betsy, Betsy. Oh, wow. Hi, Betsy. So some of you might have heard part of this story before because I did try to tell it once and totally blanked out. But it's really about nature. And, you know, we're all food for something eventually. And this uh, thing we see on Nova or, or nature, um, that's so beautifully presented. Mm, it's not really like that. <laughs> um, 
So in Zambia in 2015, we were doing the night drive of the uh, safari with the big flood lamps and a pride of lions was eating an antelope or maybe a couple of them. And I did not think about the crunching of the bones and the fact that the old females who no longer had good teeth were reduced to licking the blood off the ground and they were gaunt, you know, they were no longer really vigorous. Um, you see the beautiful big cat movies, you know, and oh, you know, gorgeous. So the very next morning, we're out on the morning, I was grossed out by that nighttime scene, but the very next morning, we're on the morning safari drive, and a hyena ran towards us with a lion's head in his mouth. And he ran towards us and used the Land Rover as his shield, as his kind of um, place to be safe. So ah! <laughs> it was, it was, it was something that, it was something the rangers had never seen. They're on their radios with each other. And some other rangers had found Caesar, the king of the beasts who had been driven out four years before. So when Brutus came in, Brutus killed all Caesar's sons. Food, you know, get rid of the progeny of the previous leader, and you got a lot of protein on board, you make your own. So four years on, Caesar comes back with an older son from another pride, and they're taking over Brutus's again. And so they're lying around with their bellies full of Brutus's offspring. Food. But we all do this like consuming, and it's a kind of powerful, like making our place in the world that they were just so magnificently showing me. So this is probably, you know not going to be seen again. I mean, I don't know. A hyena carrying a lion's head was pretty neat. Okay, please welcome to the stage Jody J. Jody J. Yeah. Hi everyone. Um, so the story goes, 
I'm 14. I'm engaged to my future husband, now ex-husband. Um, I had always worked. I worked when I, I started working when I was like eight. I worked on a farm. I planted Pacassandra by the flat, and I got paid piecemeal, and I was the top-paying little person planting Pacassandra. Um, and so my future husband was many years older than me, and he could not hold a job. He would go from one place washing dishes to then breading fish um, and just couldn't hold a job. And so his dad at some point says, why don't you go to um, tractor trailer school like I did and, and get a career, get a, get a, you know, something in life. And so, um, so he decides, okay, I'll do this, I'll try this, we'll see if it goes. Um, and again, I forgot to mention this is like way before um, I got into recovery and got sober and all those things, so I was a kind of a raving lunatic, um, to say the least. And again, I'm 14, but I'm like way older than 14. And so, um, so he goes to tractor trailer school, and it's, I don't even remember how many months, but it's like maybe six, eight, 10 months, and he graduates, and he does really well. Like he aces the test, he does really good on the driving exam. And so we decide, his parents and myself and my mom and my dad, that we should probably throw him a graduation party. Now, his parents were very, like, leave it to Beaver. No one raised their voice in the house, very low-key. My family, I came from a crazy Italian family. Everybody just screamed at each other. And so we're going to have this gathering at his house because it'll be more civil. There won't be drunken, you know, fights happening and people throwing things. And so we go to the, um, I'm going to say the J uh, house. I'm not going to say the last name. So we go to their house, and everything is very serene and calm. And so we get my grandmother there, who's early stages of dementia. My dad, my mom, I think my brother and my sister maybe came. Um, his sister, um, her husband, some other neighbors, his parents. So it's, it's a pretty good gathering. And it was a small place. They lived in a... Um, uh, sort of like a townhouse complex, and there were 50 units, and it was shaped like a, a horseshoe. Now, this this plays a big part in the story, the horseshoe. <laughs> so, so we, um, my mom and I decide um, we're gonna order a cake from my favorite bakery, Wolf's Bakery. Um, they made the best um, sugar cookies, and it was the old style bakery where the pink and white string came down on a little dispenser and they would wrap up the boxes and that was my favorite thing of all was the way they wrapped the boxes. And so we order the cake and it's gonna be this big sheet cake and I wanted an image of a tractor trailer with the cab, maybe like a Peterbilt, and a little drawing of him behind the wheel. Now this is way before like digital imaging and all the bullshit. So like somebody had to like really try to cartoon this person who had a big ass afro. And so they get that pretty good. They got the afro and the cab and the, the mags, you know, everything is like really nice. And so we, I get a, a, a call, it's ready, we go and we pick it up and we bring it back to his parents' house and everybody's waiting. and. I can't remember whether there was food or not, but I know that it was definitely like the focus was on the cake and the coffee. And so my mom, being the take charge person that she had always been, was gonna take over the situation. Now this was my cake, 
my party, my future husband, and so, um, again, I'm 14, and so, <laughs> and so <laughs> this is for real. I can't make this shit up. And so, um, so we get the cake, and we go pick up the cake, and we get there, and we bring it in, put it on the table, and my mother grabs a big fucking knife and decides she's gonna just start hacking up, make the cake, you know, into pieces, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 you're not. I wanna save the cab. I wanna save the image. We're gonna cut it, and I'm gonna put it away in the freezer for an anniversary, just like a wedding. You know, this is my fairy tale. It's gonna be the wedding cake, but it's the anniversary, but it's the, the graduation. It's something, but I wanna save it. Now, I forgot to tell you, I have really bad OCD, so everything has to be just so. And so, so she starts with the cake, and I go, oh, no, you're not. And I grab the cake, and I start to haul ass out of the apartment. And I hear my grandmother in the background. Now, again, she's like in her 80s, and she's got like early stages of dementia. She's like, Joyce, where is she taking the cake? Where is she going? And I start barreling ass out the door, and I'm running around this complex. Now, like, this is like a big place. It's like probably twice the size of Stop and Shop's parking lot. And I'm just booking ass around it with my mother chasing me with the knife. <laughs> And so she finally, <laughs> again, my mom, my mom was like almost six foot. This is me. I've always been the five two. So you can imagine my mother, this big German woman, chasing me in the parking lot with this knife. And I'm like carrying this sheet cake, trying to get away. She finally <laughs> catches up with me. She grabs me by the back of the hair. Yes, I had hair at that time. I had like a big ass mullet with a big tail in the back. And, <laughs> and so, so she grabs me by the hair and pulls me back into the house. We finally end up cutting up the cake, we save the cab, and I don't really remember whatever happened to the rest of the cake, but that's my food story. Um, all right, next storyteller, Pat Medina. Oh. Yay, Pat. All right, so, you know, in thinking about food as a theme. I mean, not that I don't always think about food, but I have to say, I've had a lifetime relationship full of lustiness and passion about food. And I think it started when I was very young. My mom used to work nights, and so for dinner time, her idea of the menu was, you girls, you can go down to Benny's Diner, or you can go around the corner to Joey's Pizzeria, it was a New York food thing. Or you can, don't cook tonight, call chicken delight. <laughs> and so it was up to my older sister and I to decide what she and I and our younger sister was eating. And so she'd give us the money and just kind of throw it on the table. And I think it was around that time that I really started seriously thinking about my relationship with food. You know, I like the weirdest thing. So we would go to Joey's Pizzeria, and my sister would be like, oh, I'll have the pepperoni pizza. And I'd say, I'll have the pepper and egg sub, please. I was like nine years old. <laughs> Who eats a pepper and egg sub over a pizza? Me. But anyway, my, my go-to was the chicken delight thing, only because until they got to the door, I would like to sing the jingle. So over the course of time, I'm, uh, I know a lot of you in the audience know that I come from a broken home. Ooh, it was really cool, though, because I got a lot of different cultures from them. 
So my mom was the type to send us out, and she had like a credit tab at all these places in the neighborhood. The only place we had to really pay cash was, you know, the chicken delight guy. And so that was okay. Now my dad had a very big, large Spanish family talking about food. And we lived in Brooklyn. I don't need to say more. Food, food, all over the place. So anyway, so I was really turned on to the Spanish food until I realized that there was like probably around 3,420 variations on rice and beans. <laughs> Tis a miracle I still eat a bean today, but I happen to like them a lot. My stepmother was a horrendous cook. At that point, I also started thinking about my relationship to food because up until the time I was about seven, all I really wanted when I lived in that household was Gerber baby food because at least I knew what I was getting. So anyway, so we had the rice and beans thing going on and you know, I was tortured. I had the rice over here, the beans over here, and my dad would wait until I was nodding out at the table. He said, are you finished eating yet? Can I go to the bathroom? spit it all out. But anyway, so then my mother got remarried and she remarried a Jewish man. So we had Seda and we had all this Jewish food, which was, oh my goodness, and I ate everything. I ate everything and I lived my life skinny like a rail up until menopause and stopped smoking and now forget about it. But anyway, so I had this relationship of, with food that I could lust over it and eat it all and eat a lot and I had a voracious appetite and I was an active child but I was very introverted so if I sat with the food in here because I didn't like it I never told anybody why so I had the baby food thing going on until I was about six or seven years old and it was a big trauma at my dad's house and you know I'm still when I, when I was faced with this theme tonight I thought about my relationship with food and I thought, oh my goodness. So I had Jewish food from um, my, I call them my Jewish grandparents who were Russian Jew and French Jew. So they had that ethnicity going on. I had the Spanish food at my father's house and I had all the takeaway food at my mother's house. And then she got hooked up with an Italian man. So now we had Italian food in the house. And my mother, you know, she went from being Hispanic to being Italian just because she felt like she could because she spoke with her hands too. And so <laughs> we had all this food and all this hand jive going on no matter where I went. And it was a, it was a great feeling to, to be able to really experiment and be the one that would say, oh yeah, I'll try that. Oh yeah, I'll try that. I don't like tongue. I mean, I like tongue, but... <laughs> But I don't like, like, I don't like it sliced, let's put it that way. I don't, I still don't eat Brussels sprouts in any form, even at the canteen. No. Like that, Brussels sprouts. And up until I was probably around 30-something years old, I would not even try to eat sushi. And not because of the raw fish, but because of the nori, that black stuff. It's just, 
Now I love it. I love it. I go, I go have sushi all the time. But, you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about my relationship with food. Because at a certain point, I stopped smoking. It threw me into menopause. I started gaining weight. And I thought, I have to think about what I'm eating now? I don't know how to do that. So then we come to the Mosquito Story Slam over here. And the topic is food. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm having an identity crisis over it. I just don't know what to think about it. That's all there is, folks. So I'd like to welcome to the stage, Jerry Riley. So before I tell you a story, I have two questions. Is there anybody in the audience who works for the Department of Conservation and Recreation, the DCR? No, that's a good sign. And the second question is, can all of you keep a secret? <laughs> all right, I trust you. It's probably a bad idea, but uh, I trust you. So as uh, Vanessa said, I'm, I get involved with all kinds of crazy projects. And six years ago, two friends and I started the most amazing food-related event I've ever seen. And if you'd ever seen it, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's uh, quite a thing. Now, I live a block away uh, in a place called Newton Upper Falls. It's a block from the river, the Charles River. The river goes over a waterfall, through a deep gorge, and across the gorge is this giant bridge that was built in the 1800s. It's the bridge that brought the water to Boston for, you know, um, uh, back in the 1800s. So this huge big bridge, it's, it's an aqueduct, but there's a pedestrian path on the top and it's like 150 feet down to the water. And it's pretty, this, you don't think of this as the Charles River. So um, six years ago, uh, we started this event. And what happens is on a particular day at five o'clock at night, all the church bells ring in our neighborhood and people pour out and 400 people walk across this bridge with bags in their hand. And the bags have plates and knives and forks and spoons. And they get to the far side of the bridge, they go up the stairs, and the aqueduct goes straight ahead and it's flat and grassy and there's woods on either side. It's a really nice park. And there's a 400 foot long table, one table, no breaks, a 400 foot long table, a kitchen set up. The neighbors sit down, 400 of them, and have a feast. And the feast goes on for hours, and the food is fantastic, and it's five, six courses. It kind of unfolds real slowly. And if you live in the neighborhood, it's free. So you get everybody. You get, you know, you don't, it's not like a, uh, there's certain, uh, there's similar kind of things that are like high ticket, you know, kind of things. This is sort of like everybody in the neighborhood comes. We put the tickets online. It's like the Rolling Stones coming to the Upper Falls. 15 minutes, they're gone. But the other thing about this event is um, we get the, all the local muckety-mucks to be the waiters. And this happened by accident because the first year we put the tickets online, they're all gone. And then like the next day, we start getting calls from city councilors and this and that, where, where are my tickets? And we're like, well, they're gone. And they weren't happy about this. So we came up with the idea, we'll make them all the waiters. So they've, ever since, they've been the waiters. So we have, we call them the VIP servers, and we get state reps, the mayor, city council, school committees, CEOs of companies, 
and they fight to get on this thing, and then we work their asses, and they like, and they don't get fed till the whole dinner's over, down in Downton Abbey, down the hill. So anyway, we did this the first year, and uh, one of the details of this that was, uh, was yeah, it turns out you need permits. You need all kinds of permits. The park is run by the DCR, the bridges, the MWRA, everybody needs a permit, everybody's got a thing. We have to file them like 90 days, three months before the event, we filed for the permits. And uh, we were living on our nerves because we didn't get our permits till two days before the event. And that week we had to like order all the crap and get all the stuff and we take it on faith. But we get our permit and what comes with the permit is uh, a park ranger. And he comes 11 o'clock in the morning, opens up the gate. And uh, well, it's not a gate, it's like, it's two concrete posts and a big wire and a, a big like steel cable and a huge padlock. And he got his, all his keys, he opens up the thing, pulls it back, we back all the trucks in, unload all this stuff, and we spend the next five hours building this, you know, amazing thing in the, in the, in the woods. People loved it. It's like the biggest thing that happens in the neighborhood. It's been going for six years ever since. The second year we did it, second year of any, second time you do anything is easier than the first time. And so, you know, we kind of got this. Now we're starting to get our role and, you know, we get our permits and the park ranger comes with this big, open the big lock and put the trucks in. It's great. By the third year, we're getting cocky now. Like we've got this, this, you know, feast of the falls times. Let's do it. But about three weeks before the event, all of a sudden we realized, did you get the permits? No. Did you get, I, I, I didn't get it. We didn't have any permits. And now it's three weeks before the event. We were supposed to file three months ago. And so we had a decision to make. And there's only two decisions, two things you can do. One is we can, we, can, uh, we can throw ourselves at the mercy of the state bureaucracy and see if we can get it somehow an expedited thing in a week or two that's supposed to take three months. Um, and if we don't, we're screwed. Or we can wing it. So we had a big, long talk. It lasted five, 10 seconds, and a unanimous decision was made, we're gonna wing it. Now, the reason we could wing it is because when that guy had to open the big padlock, I was there the last two years. And it turns out, he's opening a padlock on this big steel cable, and at the other end of the steel cable, it's attached to that post with the cable clamp. And a man with a big wrench can just open the nuts on the cable, on the thing and, and do it. So we could, I have a big wrench, I go, I open the thing, we back the trucks in and we have this feast. And we have no permits, 400 people, the mayor, this and that, and, uh, and, uh, and it's totally illegal. So after that, we thought, well, let's not bother with this. So now that year four, five, and this year will be year six, we have no permits, we have no intention of getting permits. And, you know, as Vanessa mentioned, I'm involved with all kinds of stuff, but I think one of the things I am, like, the most proud of is this event. It is spectacular in our neighborhood. It's the biggest thing that happens, and you just get everybody down there for, like, two and a half, three hours, 400 people eating dinner together. It's an amazing thing. But the thing that makes me the most proud is for the last four years, we get state reps, the mayor, the city council, the school committee, to unwittingly, without their knowledge, be involved intimately in a totally illegal event. So, <laughs> um, Beth Goldstein. Oh, hi, Beth. I went to Seraldi's. Um, last week for the first time, and I thought about standing up here and just telling you about every course. <laughs> but I'm not gonna do that. 
it was great. I need to stand here, is that okay? Um, so I want, I just told my friend Mary the story. I was like, should I get up and tell this? And she was like, yeah. Um, when I was young, I got out of college and I worked for a summer and then I went and lived on a kibbutz in Israel because I wanted to see what it was like to be a socialist, but that's a whole nother story. It has nothing to do with food. And while I was there, you live, you know, everybody's equal-ish. And we all lived in, we all ate in one big room. And what I was gonna call this story was how I, why I became a vegetarian and then how I fell off the vegetable wagon into, into <laughs> a coop of chickens. So with that in mind, you know, so like that's the, that's the precursor. So I'm, in, I'm, I'm on the kibbutz and we're eating in the big room with everybody and when we had chicken, so you know there were chickens at the kibbutz and there were cows at the kibbutz and there was vegetables. And, you know, it was hard because I lived right next to where the cows were and then one day, you know, you start naming the cows and you know what happened. You can imagine, like, one day Fluffy wasn't there anymore. <laughs> you know, then you name the chickens and, you know, the little, like, Pecky wasn't there <laughs> anymore. <laughs> and then, you know, you're eating in the dining room and... You know, I had chicken, and it still had, like, the little hairs on it from where they would plucked them. So that started me thinking, like, maybe I started going toward the vegetables a little bit. And then one day, my friend, this guy that I was kind of dating, but not yet, it was a long time ago, and <laughs> he wanted to really impress me, and he was like, let's go on a trip to Jerusalem. Like, I'll take you. So I was like, okay, let's go. And he said, and we'll go, I'll take you out to a restaurant, like a real restaurant. I was 21, you know, I was like, you know, I'd had pizza. So, um, and falafel, because, you know, <laughs> I was in Israel. So um, we went to Jerusalem, and, you know, we went to, there's four quarters in Jerusalem. You know, the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, the Arab quarter. I don't know, what's the fourth quarter? I don't actually remember. <laughs> So we were in the Arab Quarter, which was super exciting. It was very vivacious, and we were, you know, bargaining and buying stuff. And then he said, I want to take you out to dinner, and, which was pretty exciting. So we go around. You know, this is way before the Internet. You couldn't get on a phone. You weren't, like, checking out. You weren't seeing who had the, you know, best write-up in whatever travel zoo. <laughs> I don't know. You'd look it up. No stars. So we just walked around and um, asked people, and they were like, that is the best restaurant over there. So we went into the restaurant, and it, you know, for me, it was like a big deal. You know, they had, you know, tablecloths, and I think we had wine. I mean, it was pretty, pretty good. And we ordered chicken. So um, we get, our, you know, we get our appetizers, and we get our main course. And the chicken, you know, there's this beautiful piece of chicken with all these little vegetables around and some kind of sauce. And I start to eat, and it's delicious. <laughs> and for some reason, I don't know why, I don't know why I did this, but for some reason, I put my fork in the chicken, the little filet, and I lifted it up. I don't know why I did this. It must have been an intuition. <laughs> and underneath this piece of chicken was 
the biggest dead cockroach you have ever seen. It was like, <laughs> it was as big as the plate, and I started screaming. <laughs> like, I was inconsolable, and he's like, sit down, and I was like, no! And then, the, you know, all the, pe the guys were coming over, and they were trying to quiet here. They were like, oh, these Americans, you know, get them out of here. And they were like, you have to pay for your meal. And we're like, we're not paying for our meal. Anyway, we went running out of there. It was like super traumatic, and that's how I became a vegetarian. <laughs> Fast forward 20 years later, I'm, I'd been a vegetarian for a long time, and I was living in where I used to live, Charlottesville, wonderful Charlottesville, Virginia. And, um, you know, at that time I was cycling, and I was playing tennis, and I was, you know, a bit of an athlete. And I was still a vegetarian because of this trauma from Jerusalem. <laughs> and I was in Whole Foods, and I just don't, I don't know what came over me, but I just like walked up to the counter where the chickens were, the roasted chickens, right? And I just started staring at the little container, the plastic thing, and it was like steaming up, and it was sort of juicy. And I had to have it. Like, I just, I don't know what came over me. I was just like, I need that protein, like, now. <laughs> and then I, you know, I got it. I asked for, like, you know, whatever, you know, the honey-coated steam, <laughs> roasted chicken. And then I felt guilty, you know, because <laughs> like, everybody thought I was a vegetarian. So, like, I bought it, but I snuck it under my butt. <laughs> <laughs> And I like looked around to see if anybody knew me there, and then I like bought the chicken, and I got it into a bag so no one could see it, and I get into my car, and I open it up. I'm sitting in my car by myself, and I open this container up, and I start eating it with my hands, and it is dripping. It's like all over my face, and it's like in my face fingernails, right? It's like dripping down my shirt. <laughs> and I'm licking my fingers, and I'm like chewing. The, you know, it was like totally disgusting. <laughs> and I just sat there and laughed. You know, I was just like, wow, I guess I needed that. <laughs> Thank you. Let's bring up another first-time mosquito storyteller. Thank you for signing up at intermission, Angela. Angela McNeary? McNary? Yep. Woo. Yes. Uh, I used to be married uh, to a guy. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> anyway, when we were dating, um, I knew how to make an apple pie, a really, really good apple pie. And I thought, I really like this guy. So I made him the apple pie from scratch. It was great. And he thought, because it was so great, that there'd be more. And, uh, and, uh, it was a straight drop. There, 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 there just never was any more. I'm not a foodie. I'm not a food person. I don't even know what most food is. 
I've eaten meat and potatoes my whole life, and I like it. I eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every single day. And when I bite into a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every single day, I think, this is the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich I have ever had. So I don't know why, but this guy marries me. And uh, 10 years go by. You know, we don't really talk about the food thing. We're just, everybody's just kind of going along with it. You know, we have several kids, like Pez, they came. And, uh, and I fed them the meat and the potatoes. And everyone seemed to live. They thrived, you know. And um, so 10 years goes by, and I turn 40. And my husband, former husband, still a good guy, um, he has a roast for me. And in the roast, he had hired a British actor to create a food show called Dinner Doorknockers. <laughs> And this was, the whole premise was that this British guy was a renowned chef that travels through the countryside, knocking on random doors to make an incredible gourmet feast with the ingredients in the occupant's house. <laughs> so my husband creates a video of this, and it goes like this. The guy is standing in front of our 175-year-old farmhouse. And he's talking about repast. I don't know. Does that have something to do with food? I don't know. He's talking about the wonderful things he does with food. And um, he knocks on the door. And I had two golden retrievers that I never, you know, I, I ran kind of a loose house. and. Uh, <laughs> I never really trained the dogs. You know, when they were little like this, they were cute, you know, so let's get two. Uh, and I just, it was a thing. So anyway, the dogs like just totally flattened them on the front lawn. And, uh, but he regains his composure, his British composure, and he goes to the door and my husband answers the door and he says, I'm here to make a wonderful gourmet meal for your family using the ingredients in your kitchen. Isn't that great? And the camera sh shoots to my husband's face, and he goes, really? And the guy just blows right by him and goes into the kitchen, and he's at the refrigerator, and he opens the refrigerator door, and he says, let's see what ingredients we have in here. And he pulls this this paper thing out that in big block letters says meat. <laughs> and uh, he goes, this is a great start. Let's see what else is in here. And so he pulls out another, another paper thing that says more meat. <laughs> and so he's like, well, this is interesting. And I wonder what this family has in their freezer. So he opens the freezer. And it's lined solely with bags of frozen corn. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing else in there but bags of, even on the door, there's, there's bags of frozen corn. So he, he's getting a little nervous. I can't blame him, you know. And uh, he said, well, let's see if we can't find a fresh ingredient in the pantry. 
and he opens up the pantry and 300 pounds of potatoes fall out onto the floor, <laughs> knocking this guy on his ass. So he, he said, I, 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 a little birdie told me where the spice cabinet is. I, you know, he's sweating, the poor guy. And he goes over to the cabinet and he, he said, I'm sure we can find something to work with here. And he pulls open the cabinet and, and my husband, who's a little bit of an exaggerator, it's lined just with Morton salt jars. There's, there's, there's three shelves, and there's six Morton salt jars on each shelf. And now the guy's really, he's starting to freak out. He's a food guy, you know? And he said, the only thing I can think of is there must be something, some kind of baked good. And he opens up the next cabinet, and there's nine loaves of Wonder Bread. And so this guy just says, I have to get out of here. This place is crazy. This is like a mental institution. And he, he tries to leave, but and then the camera pans down, and apparently I don't clean either. So he can't, he can't leave. And then there's like little baby shoes kind of stuck to the kitchen tile. Anyway, that's, that's, I, I do cook better than that, but that's, that, I, my charms lay elsewhere. <laughs> Kara Keller, a nice name, good branding, your name. Where's Kara? Hi, Kara. I don't think I've ever done anything in five minutes, so here we go. Um, okay, so I have to tell this story because it's about food, in a way. Um, about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, uh, my wife and a really close friend of ours, Eric, were uh, planning to come from California to Provincetown for a week. So we found a place on Bradford Street, very reasonable, about 25,000 for the week. And um, <clears throat> we decided we're gonna take the red eye and we're gonna get into Boston and we're gonna go to my parents' house. And we're gonna beg my mother to take her beautiful car. We're gonna go to the supermarket. We're gonna just load it up with everything for the week. So we go to Market Basket, those of you who know where <coughs> Market Basket is. Um, so we get to the house and my parents are glad to see us. I felt bad because it's like, hi mom, hi dad, see ya. We're going to P-Town. But um, my mom goes, oh, your father wants you to take his car. I'm like, ugh. So let me tell you about my dad's car. My dad drove a teal Chrysler LeBaron with the vinyl roof, and it had gray leather interior with buttons. I used to call it the pimp mobile. And the shock absorbers were so bad, it was just this bouncy, it was the most horrible car, but you know what? I was desperate, so anyway. So we get the car, uh, we get, we get there, we don't sleep, we take the red eye, we're exhausted, we're hungry, we're just so excited to go to P-Town for the week. We go to the supermarket. So I tell my wife, who is a total foodie, I said, listen, we're just gonna get the essentials, we're gonna eat healthy this week, we're gonna, just, we're gonna be in P-Town, we don't wanna eat bad, we wanna get salads and vegetables. So we get to the supermarket, and all she can think about is the lobster rolls that they sell at Market Basket. So if you don't know this, the Market Basket sells lobster rolls, two in a container for like, $3, and it's tons of meat, whatever. So she's completely lost focus. Now we're in the supermarket, she's heading right for the lobster rolls, and we're like, now Sam, make sure we're gonna get salad, we're gonna get some fruit, so all of a sudden, I look in the back, she's got fucking mayonnaise, like all, oh, she's like shoving lobster rolls in her face. 
So Eric's like, oh, Sam's down the rabbit hole again. I said, all right, well, we have to focus. So he gets like 700 rolls of toilet paper. I don't know why he thought we needed 700 rolls of toilet paper. Paper towels. So we shopped really healthy. After we got the funny bones and the Doritos, we were like ready to go to P-Town. So now we get to the parking lot. I don't know where Sam is. All I know is I see her coming to the, to the out. She's got her own bag about 27 lobster rolls. There's mayonnaise all over her chest. It's disgusting on her hands and her hair. And Eric's like, oh, she's disgusting. I said, I know, I can't help it. So we get in the car. And of course, we had so much food. We had enough food for like three months on enough toilet paper for six. But we get in the car, and I was starting to drive. Now, if anyone of you know Boston, the traffic is horrendous. It's 1,000 degrees. The Pimpmobile has no air conditioning. And the car is literally packed within an inch of itself. The trunk, we had our luggage, toilet paper. Thank God my friend Eric is this big. He's in the back seat in the corner. Sam's driving, and I'm in the passenger seat. So of course, we all had little snacks because we hadn't eaten on the, on the, on the red eye. So Eric's in the back. I don't know what he's eating, probably a protein bar. I'm in the front eating like probably a bag of Chippehoys. And Sam is still fucking eating lobster rolls. Now we're going over the Tobin Bridge. And she's eating, and I just keep looking in the, the visor at Eric, and I'm, we're rolling our eyes like, we can't believe she's probably on at least her fourth or fifth lobster roll. They're, they're tiny, but she's just, in a, her eyes are glazed over. She can't see what she's doing. She's driving, doesn't know where the fuck she is, because she's not from Boston. And I'm like, do you know where you're going? I don't know. She wasn't even focused. So now she's eating. Eric and I are making fun of her, and um, I'm having, of course, I'm eating. I'm having my love affair with whatever I was eating at the time. And we're just making eye contact. I keep looking at him, and she's shoveling. All of a sudden, I can see she's getting aggravated because she's finished her eighth lobster roll, and she's trying to open a bag of chips. And she's trying to drive, and she doesn't know where the fuck she is, and she's trying to drive, and I can see her, like, and I keep looking at her like this. So I'm just not saying a word. She can't open the bag of chips. She can't open the bag of chips. Eric can see her over the shoulder. We're both laughing. All of a sudden, she's like, can you fucking help me with this? Can't you see I'm struggling? So I was like, oh boy, I better help her with this. She's a little hungry. So I grabbed the bag of chips, and I did this on purpose. I opened the bag this much, because she was being a pain in the ass. So I was like, Tss. So I hand the bag back to her. So now she's driving, and she's trying to shove her hand into an opening this big. And she's getting completely frustrated. And she's going out of her lanes, and we're like, oh my god, oh my god. So she's like, Jesus, and she couldn't get her hand in the bag, and I just started laughing. Now, you have to know my wife. She's a foodie, but she's the nicest person, and she would never say a bad thing about anybody, and she's kind, and I think in the 22 years we've been married, she's never said one bad thing to me about my, nothing. She's just the kindest person. So we're la laughing at her. She's trying to eat the chips. All of a sudden, she just can't get her hand in the bag, and it's just getting ugly for her, and she looks at me, and I just start laughing, and she goes, you're the fattest thing in this car. And I was just like, oh. So my friend Eric, I look in the rear view, and all I can see is Eric doing that. He's fucking dying, but he doesn't want to laugh. And I am cracking up. And she realized what she said to me. And she starts crying because she felt so bad. And I am just dying. And I look over at her, and she's like, ugh, bawling. Now, we're driving on the Zaken Bridge. I don't know if you know. And it's crazy. And she's bawling, and I'm like, we're going to die. So she looks over at me, and, and she looks over at me, and I said, what did you just say? She goes, I said, you're the fattest thing in this car. 
And I said, well, if your hand wasn't so fucking fat, you would be able to get it in the bag of chips. Now, my poor friend Eric is in the back seat about to spend a week with the two of us. <laughs> Barely could fit in the car. So the rest of the ride, needless to say, was very quiet. We finally get to the, to the, um, to the Tobin, not the Tobin, what's the bridge? Uh, Sagamore Bridge. So we're not quiet. We're, we're talking Boston to Sagamore. It was about an hour and 10 minutes. No, nobody said anything. I just kept looking at Eric, and we were laughing. She cried for maybe 20 minutes because she felt so bad. So we get to the, right before we get over the bridge, and she just looks over. Does anyone have to use the bathroom? And I'm like, yeah, we could stop. So we stop, and um, we go to, I think it was Friendly's or something. And when we get to Friendly's, um, Eric and I go to, in the bathroom, and we came back out. Sam was eating her eighth lobster roll. Thanks. <laughs> Miranda Wheeler. Woo. I'm kind of known back home as Bike Girl because in the newspapers, if you look them up, this is a true thing, in Torrington, Connecticut, I hit somebody's house with a bike um, while riding just because that's kind of a thing that happens to me a lot. Um, I'm very clumsy. I get into a lot of accidents. I get into a lot of trouble, and I am just the most over-the-top person ever because I am super focused and crazy, and if I have to do anything, I have to do it so much that it's almost gross and nothing gets done well. Um, I think I learned it from my mom, who learned everything that she does from her mom. She's the kind of lady who would get up at like 5 in the morning three days before a holiday and just cook nonstop and you could not talk to her, you could not make eye contact in those three days, you should not enter the kitchen. Otherwise, if something happens to you, you should have signed a waiver just by walking in. You, just, you made a choice and you're living with it. Um, but my mom also came from a place where food isn't just one of these things that she has to do well for the sake of doing well. She's not a cleaner. She's not one of those people where your grades had to be perfect. It was just this one particular thing. And I really didn't understand why um, until I was 15. And she's just like, you know, I don't think I ever really talked to you about my mom because she died when you were three. And I started to realize that, well, for some context, last Thursday I just turned 23, my birthday. And it officially makes me older than my mother was when she had all three of my, myself and my brother and my other brother. And I realized how crazy, stupid, young that is. I still hit houses with bikes and you had <laughs> humans to care for. Um, which was really alarming. And she kind of said to me, she's like, you know, I was really young and I was really passionate about your father, God knows why. <laughs> and I really thought that I would be a good mom because I could make all of my mom's recipes. Like I could recreate anything. And I was like, well, mom, if you think that cooking is enough to qualify you to have kids, you're basically a witch in a German fairy tale. Um, and she was, she was like the worst disaster you could think of, but she never tried to bake us or sell us for cabbages. So she was not a witch in a German fairy tale. And, um, but she did, she had us when she was really, really young and growing up, she kind of did it so powerfully that it kind of vicariously imbued me with this confidence that I too could cook anything because she just does it. And it's like nothing. And the stuff is already in our house, right? Um, but then when I was 17, I woke up three days after my birthday, also a June, and her aorta had dissected. And every day from that point on, she's not cooked anything for anybody. Um, she's been in and out of hospice. She graduated hospice, which is really rare and amazing. Um, and she's just struggling with disability and new identity. And most difficult for her is her mother's 
the anniversary of her mother's passing and holidays because she can't cook. So I always try to kind of get up early in the mornings and do the same thing that she always did. I can't make it a three-day affair because the house will burn down. Any amount of prolonged time on a project like that is just increasing the casualties and <laughs> not a good idea. Um, but I kind of, those first couple of weeks where she was still non-communicative and in the ICU and I really didn't think I'd ever have a conversation with my mom again, for some reason all I could do is think, I've got two little brothers, my dad is a complete wreck and not talking to anyone, I should just be baking, that's what my mom would be doing. But I can't bake, so I'm burning everything, the house smells horrible and people are sad too, so it's, it's just too much. Story of my life. And um, finally these church ladies from my dad's church um, come over to the house and they're and I'm expecting oh my god thank god somebody's here to save me they must have brought casseroles they're wearing casserole lady dresses <laughs> and instead they're like we noticed that you haven't come to services in a while I'm like oh my god I know these people and um, I'm just like yeah yeah I'm expecting them to be like but it's okay because we're all God's children like this stuff I grew up hearing from my dad and his side of the family and my mom's side of the family is very different and um, instead they're just like, well, you know, you haven't, we've had several potlucks and now that you're the woman of the house, um, we expect you to be bringing casseroles. And I'm like, I can't really do that. I'm commuting two hours to see my mom in the hospital and trying to finish high school. And they said, well, we have young daughters and we don't really want to see the oldest young girl in our generation, in our organization, our congregation, setting that example. So um, please don't come back. And I was like, I thought you were here for casseroles. What's happening? Whiplash. Um, so fast forward to a couple of years and I've had like this crazy identity crisis about food because I'm still trying to bake things for people when they're sad and making them sadder by what I've baked and trying to pass on to them. And um, it wasn't until my final year of college, I just graduated in March. And um, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> college went about as well as my baking, so. And my biking and all the other bees I should stay away from. And um, my friend had gone through a really difficult experience with a romantic partner and she couldn't really tell if it qualified as a sexual assault. So very heavy, which is kind of what my humor revolves around, sorry. And um, I kind of talked to her and I panicked. I'm just like, I should be baking you something. And she said, please don't, because we've been down this road. And instead I'm just like, okay, I shouldn't cook for you, but somebody should. But we're in a college town, so all I can think of is just wrapping her in a lot of sweaters. The other things moms do is you're just, are you warm enough? Have more sweaters? And I take her to McDonald's and she's drinking a shake and I already feel bad because it's an evil thing to do to give somebody McDonald's and take them there. And I was sorry, but it's better than giving them my evil baking, which might kill you. So you, yeah, anyway, she's there. And I did that horrible thing that people do when somebody's going through something horrible and heartbreaking and tragic, which is fill the silence with, I remember that one time I did a thing that made me sad about a thing. Here's my stuff, and I hope it doesn't overcome your stuff. I'm just trying to say I relate, and I see you, and I want to be here for you. And I couldn't stop talking about how I was such a bad baker, and I'm so sorry I couldn't bake her things. And she had said, you know, what you do is you take us to some place where we can get food, and you give us, you know, sweaters or your Netflix password or something. Um, <laughs> and what you're doing is you're trying so hard. You're giving so much that sometimes it overwhelms people. But what you're doing is you're, you create this space that's really like coming home to my mom, like even though we're away at college, um, and you're really just giving me something. And I kind of realized at that moment that what I did was I took on something that was much more important for my mom, what she was doing with all these food and all this baking and all this obsessive planning and trying to fix people is that she was just creating space 
to do something expressive about how much she loves you. So I should never bake. Please never accept a cupcake from me. I will try to give you all kinds of things, and it will probably hurt somebody. It comes from a good place. Um, but I think what we as women or people in general do from our mothers is we try to learn to love the way that they loved, and we can never match what moms can do for their kids. Um, but I think what food teaches us when we say food is love is it's not so much about this thing that you imbibe, but it's this space and this thing you try to do for other people. Um, so when I think about food, I think about how I'm really bad at it, and I don't know a lot about it, and people are concerned when it comes up in conversation. Um, or I try to do a thing. They're like, you shouldn't, why do you have knives in your house? I'm worried. Don't buy anything that's not ready for consumption. Um, but I also think about how moms just have this practice, this consistent daily practice of showing you that they see you and that you deserve love. And um, I try to do a practice in the same space, even though I shouldn't be cooking. So that's my story. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.